House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Mr. Martini's on the other side of the planet. On the other side of the planet? <laughs> In your mind, you're always over there. <laughs> yeah, I'm in outer space. Yeah, he's wearing his uh, dress and his yep. army boots. Yeah. And he's got a cigar ready to go. I know. What's new, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Life in the city, I'll tell you. There's nothing mm. like it. Kind of like a Madonna video or something. <laughs> well, did they pick your uh, pictures? No, they still haven't picked the few, so I don't know which which one will be uh -huh. gracing the world. Um, Can't wait! I'm excited. I I, why are you excited? I look terrible and all. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I was just I was just shocked at how old I got. No. Yeah. What do you mean no? no. I'm no, I'm no. in shock. I looked and I go, my God! <laughs> I was depressed well, we, for an hour. We all feel like that when we see our pictures. Well, yeah, but. You were never. I always try to remind you were never myself. Beautiful, I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I always just try to remind myself that uh, the camera puts you know forty pounds on. So forty look like it put on a hundred. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, my God. Yeah, hey, you know. You know, and of course that's all I'm looking at. You know, you ever look at it and I think, my God, it's going to be in a magazine. Everyone's going to see that. They're going to go, who's that fat old man? <laughs> of course, that's what's been going on in my mind ever since. I thought the professional could make me look good. You do look good, Al. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they take up, up from above and below and on the side. There are all these angles, and they look like they're really, I feel like I'm in a, I felt like I was like, I don't know, some model for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't turn out when I saw the pictures. <laughs> I don't look like Christy Brinkley or anything. My God. <laughs> I should have done something like that. It maybe would have looked better. Makeup, makeup. <laughs> makeup. At least they didn't ask to powder my forehead or my head. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's a change. You're ready for your close-up. I'm ready, yeah. Not too much glare. Uh, well, now today we are getting, uh, this is actually our 100th show of the year today. Wow. And uh, then I get to go on my little vacation. Um. Ooh. Yeah, not a big deal. Back after the long weekend in July. Yeah. Um, so for our 100th and our final sh show of the first half of the year, we've got um, quite an interesting fellow here. So he's done some really good writing here. Um, so let's just uh, bring him in, Mr. Jim Provenzano. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, we haven't had you yet. <laughs> inviting me to your show. Nice. That's better. Um, <laughs> wow. So, I, you know, I always start this way because I always it, it really interests me when I get someone uh, and a writer uh, to kind of want to know what happened in their life that made them think they could write. And it's not as bad as that sounds. I mean <laughs> right. this in a way of like, there's plenty of people that write, you know, to themselves, diaries, journals, their own books, do this stuff. But what is it in your life that made you think that this is what you want to do? I always wanted to write, but I ended up doing lots of other things. I had a very encouraging family. 
Um, my parents loved getting gifts of little handmade books that I made since I was a child, little stapled together pages and cartoons. Um, so the, we, my brother and I mostly, and my sister were very creative. We were encouraged to be creative in performing and uh, extracurricular activities. And I think the funniest story is a uh, cute story is in junior high school. We had uh, what I think, I don't know if they still have them called career days where you ask to, you know, go for a day to some job that you'd like to have. Of course, most kids don't get to do that. They end up going to, you know, um, bakeries or, or one, one couple ended up going to, a couple of kids ended up going to the local mortuary in a small town in Ohio where I was raised. I said, in the middle of the English class, I said to my teacher, I want to be a, a, an author. And she said, well, we don't have those here. <laughs> it was actually wrong. There were several authors even back in the 70s. But I ended up being assigned to with the local newspaper's uh, photojournalist. So I ended up covering other kids doing uh, their career days and taking pictures and doing interviews. And it led to my being in the, you know, working in the school newspaper, making cartoons for the paper, and then realizing later on that journalism was a way to write when I still didn't know how to write fiction. So I started, by the time of 1989, I started freelancing and also working at Outweek Magazine in New York City, where I, my first published articles were um, arts reviews of plays edited by the late, great Sarah Pettit, Michelangelo Signorelli. It was a great crew of people who all blossomed onto other things. Uh, Dale Peck, uh, Walter Armstrong went to edit Pause, Gabriel Rotello. So there was a whole creative field of freedom, but it was also gay-specific. So that was a real opening of my voice to allow me to write as an openly gay man. It was a big deal. And, you know, the fiction kind of trailed along behind that. And through the 80s in New York, I dabbled with some short stories and dribblings of little novels that became completed later on. Um, but by the early 90s, 1992, I moved here to California because I, I couldn't get work enough in New York. So I started freelancing for a lot of California papers. And on a visit, I brought my resume and, um, like I went to the Guardian and they said, oh, we have internships. And I replied, well, I have three advocate cover stories, so goodbye. Um, so I did not do the internship. But at the Bay Area Reporter, um, the, there was a, a, a writer, a calendar editor, who, um, and I'd done that before, who was going on a trip to Italy for two months. So I substituted for him. And then when he came back, he got boosted to being the accountant, and I had a full-time job. So thanks to the BAR and Bob Ross, I had a job, I got an apartment, and I moved to, and then I started really writing a lot more. Uh, and I found that journalism and photojournalism and my later sports column that I had for 10 years led to creative writing because it was, you could use the skills that you learned, the deadlines that you had self-imposed or imposed. And um, the research was something that was fascinating to me for all of my fiction novels and the short stories there's some research in real reality in all of those uh, yeah. topics that I didn't know very well that I learned a lot about from wrestling to uh, cycling to cater waitering to dating a disabled person um, and other other themes that, that were like, well, I know something about this, but I need to do homework and research the way I did for my journalism. So they, they paired nicely through a performing arts career that came and went. But since then, I've been writing specifically as a, for a living for the last 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm sure with your, um, you know, ha having to do the research, you would just get in there and, and do it personally. Personally, but also 
books, other books, you know, um, when um, my first novel, Pins, about gay high school wrestlers in the 90s in suburban New Jersey, I did not wrestle as a kid. I wrestled as an adult with the um, what they call masters teams like Golden Gate Wrestling and competed in, in tournaments around. So I transferred my actual experiences into those of a teenager. Uh, that was something very visceral that I got a lot of kudos for because you can't fake this kind of activity. You can maybe fake basketball if you're a fan, but there's a, there's a tactile, really intensity to that wrestling that you can't make up. You, you need to know through experiences yeah. and you need to know the terminology. Um, yeah, yeah, and I've wrestled with plenty of men too, but not not in a, not not professionally. But no, I'm sure it was a very different style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. But I learned a lot, and you can't fake that either. That comes. <laughs> um, but what 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 do you think of the world of journalism as far as the gay world, and being specifically about gay and gay writing and, and gay books and stuff like that. And I mean this because in my mind, like I'm just turning 60, and from over my period of life, it seemed to me that it was really kind of peaking in the 90s, uh, mm. and it seemed like it was getting a lot of, um, I don't want to say popularity, but it was becoming important. Um, but I'm not getting the same sort of feeling nowadays, but maybe I'm wrong. No, it's it's changed a lot, and I've seen a lot of evolution. I mean, in, as you said, in the early 90s, I was also still writing. There were like six LGBT newspapers in, in the Bay Area, and they all catered to different markets. Um, but I had been freelancing for The Advocate, for Frontiers. I helped create three or four different publications, like 10% that came and went. Um, and there was a... There was a, a, a a surplus of, of, of print media just before the internet broke. And that those who made that transition survived uh, by creating websites, by doing online journalism. Um, the precursor to podcasts, you know, audio recordings was, was a big to do. So having those who adapted survived. And now there's, of course, there's thousands of websites that don't print publication or they have a PDF that's downloadable. So, um, there, there are a lot that, that have come and gone, but there are still many still existing. Um, the diversity of voices, too, yeah. has shifted. Um, it was, you know, primarily, pre predominantly gay, white, male, and now there's a diversity. There's publications that are specific to all different people in the, in the, in the letters of our acronym, um, and all those that, those that focus on diversity. That's one of the things that I focus on since I've been uh, mostly arts, some mo some sports for 10 years, but um, now as the last two years, the arts and nightlife editor for the Bay Area Reporter, really focusing on diversity, intentional diversity to to really sh visualize the community, not not just in, in feature articles, but also just, you know, general nightlife photos. I had one photographer that I said, stop taking pictures of the cute young guys only, you know, and don't just take pictures of the drag queen on stage, take pictures of the people in the audience. So wanting to deliberately visualize bears and elders and disabled people in bars was something that was a, a, definitely a, a focus that I've had in, in my years growing up in, in media. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that um, I, it, this is kind of where I, I'm getting at, you know, major publishers, the big boys, um, it, it, do you think that they're really buying gay material nowadays? I mean, books? Yeah. Um, the big five, yeah, that's a question. I mean, having done, having had an agent that, that two big agents that failed to sell my first novel, I took to m myself and 
did it all myself. This is before print on demand. Pins was, I hired a printer. I was shipping cartons of books with UPS, East and West Coast. I was making deals with, you know, bookstores around the world and, and going to convention. It was a big deal. It was a lot. I learned everything about it through um, some very good instructional books, but also through people like the late Richard Labonte, who was the manager of a different like bookstore, who told me, go to this distri distributor, um, go to this con conference. Um, here's how to make postcards to send to libraries and things like that. But are just skills that you learn that um, nowadays anyone can publish anything themselves. But I'm seeing a lot of queer books being published by the big five, Simon & Schuster, et cetera. We just had one of my great book reviewers, Jim Piotta, did a three-part series where he did about a dozen books per issue. And there was so much diversity. There was so much new storytelling um, and vibrant book covers, et cetera, that, that it was really great to be able to pack them all in because there's so many books that we try to review and get coverage. And I try to read myself, but there's only so much time in the day. But I think there is, there is a lot of... Uh, new authors who know how to market themselves and know how to pitch properly and get agents and get, you know, healthy book deals. But I pretty much been self-publishing because I don't, I didn't have the patience to wait around for an agent in New York city to say, give me their nod of approval. I don't do queries very well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm the same. I, I, I've been through, I've had three different publishers and, uh, and um, yeah, I'm the same. I, I, I'm not the, I don't know. I guess I don't play well with others. I, don't, I think it's, I play well with others. It's just that when you own your own vehicle, when you own your own project, you get more money, but also you can determine where it goes. I mean, I have several friends now, old friends who have books out right now. And, you know, we got a review for them in my paper, but they tell me, oh, well, the bookstore that I visited didn't have the books or they're not paying for a tour. Um, I have to do my own social media. You know, one of the queries on submittables now is, you know, not only here, give us an excerpt, but give us links to all your social media to prove that you're popular. Yeah. Wow. That's a downfall because it's like, if you haven't published your first novel yet, how can you be popular? Well, you should have short stories. You should have little essays published. You should do some, you have to have something in order to get something. And, and that's where I feel like I got in before that took over. Yeah. Yeah. Because nowadays, yeah, it's how many followers you have or, you know, if you're on TikTok and you have like 40,000 people and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a cute boyfriend or pet. Yeah. I don't cute on a daily basis. I do. Here's an article I wrote. Read it or don't. I don't yeah. Care. Yeah. And I'm kind of that way. I, I, but you, you you were a dancer in the, in, right? You've got dancing history. So you could get on TikTok and start showing it off. <laughs> that was the long <laughs> Um, well, my friend John Weir, who's a dear, talented author, his book, which I will plug, um, Your Nostalgia is Killing Me, is he's in, he's kind of in a meta version of doing TikTok and social media. He's aware of how silly it is, and yet he's con self-confessing and doing a kind of persona that is is he's aware of it and you're aware of it. So he's very clever about it, whereas other people take themselves too seriously with their makeup cake baking tutorials. And, yeah. You know, I, I just don't do that. I, I don't have time for it. I barely have time to, like this morning, I posted the cover of, of the BAR's Pride issue because it's it's very colorful and flashy. And I did three media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then I had to eat breakfast and get here to do the interview. Really don't have time to invest in being a brilliant lip sync of the latest, you know, Beyonce. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, isn't that, isn't that kind of expected in a way? But does that bother you how... Um... Social social media has such a um, such a command or power over 
what's going on and what sells and what doesn't or who's doing what, that you kind of almost have to do things that you don't want to do. I mean, you know, it sounds like you're kind of just doing what you want and it doesn't matter. But in general, I think people have to. Well, the art making has always been a cult of personality. You know, my favorite is that, you know, the um, Sunny in the Park with George, Act Two, where, you know, he's talking about art isn't easy and that, that it's negotiating and it's dealing and it's hobnobbing. And, you know, I've done that and now I feel like I'm in a position where I don't have to do that. But it, you still do in a way. You need to maybe boost an ad or you need to boost an Instagram post or you need to be clever and cute and, and available. Whereas someone like Andrew Holleran has a new book out and he's doing interviews and that's great. But he's Andrew Holleran, so he can be a little choosy. Um, so it is. It, it is that, you know, just the, the, the cult of personality is something that is part of it. And, you know, I have a YouTube channel. I have a Twitter account. I have all, this, all the things. I love making trailers for my books. About my last five novels, I think I, I've made trailers because I can. That's not, I can. I'd rather spend 20 hours on two minutes that are really good than, you know, a, a silly TikTok thing that, that is not, it's going to get a bunch of likes, but it's not going to get sales. Yeah. 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 And you could be like Dave. He sleeps his way to the top every time. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. that's the way. Okay. Yeah. It works. Yeah. No, not really. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that good, obviously. No, no obviously. <laughs> no, but um, so uh, now looking through your book list, now I noticed um, the newest one you put out was just here in May, and that's Lost, The Lost of New York. So that's, I, I see, I, I like the title, I like the cover because I'm into that. I'm I'm into this. This is kind of good. What's what's the premise of this book? Well, I'm I'm glad that we're talking about it. You're the first to let me talk about it because there is a kind of mystery to the whole book. It's the unfinished novel by my late uncle, John Butch Rigney Jr. I love his his nickname. Um, I didn't put it in the in the title um, because he wanted to be a serious author. Um, the story is basically. In the mid '80s, I was my family's from New York City in various places, and I was raised in Ohio. And then I moved back to Ohio, and so to New York City, and so did my brother. And I used to visit my grandmother up in the Bronx on 238th Street, uh, too infrequently, unfortunately, because she was getting old and she got sick. So my mom drove in with my dad, and she took care of her and got her hospitalized, and we had to move her into a nursing home and clean out her apartment. So my roommate at the time had a van. We lived in a loft in Jersey City. And we took most of the furniture, which was just furniture. It was nothing, you know, fascinating. She had a lot of Agatha Christie books. And then there was this yellow plastic file folder that we didn't know what it was. And I looked at it, and it was a bunch of typed manuscript pages. And I had yet to write, like, more than a short story at the time. So I was like, who is this? Is, oh, that's your, that's your Uncle Butch's book that he tried to get written. And I was like, okay. So we mailed it home. She took it home, and it was in the attic for years. Years later, I was cleaning out the attic, you know, get, getting rid of old toys and stuff, uh, setting squirrel bait, and um, I found, refound the yellow uh, folder, file folder, and I opened it and looked at it and looked through it, and it was this novel and a half and some short stories and notes from my deceased uncle who died in 1967. And so I took it, I shipped it to myself in San Francisco. A friend of mine had a work for a law firm knew how to copy PDFify and, you know, PDF to text. So I had a text document, very rough, very sloppy because it didn't transfer well. And I took a few years and put it aside and turned it into a book. 
that I got to show my mother before she died in, uh, in 2009, about 10 years before she died. So she got to read a privately printed version of, of Uncle Butch's novel. Then at the time it was called Bugs in a Jar. Um, that's a reference to going bugs. I guess that's, that's one of those 60s terms for going to the insane asylum or something. Um, I like the metaphor, but it, it was misplaced. So I changed the title to The Lost of New York because no one else had used that title. And uh, basically, I took a few more years off, did some other of my own projects, and then decided, you know, I'm going to do this. I need to publish this because I, with very little fanfare. I cleaned it up even more. I had to change a few characters, had died in one chapter and weren't dead in the next. So I had to change a few things. But basically, I tried to keep it as it was with this very gritty, urban, uh, sad, um, you know, parolees and prostitutes and junkies. It was very uh, last exit to Brooklyn, um, very serious. Uh, and uh, a Romana Clay, it was clearly based on patches of Uncle Butch's life in the Bronx in, in the 60s. And I put it all together, and then my brother did the cover because he had the right rights-free usage of some of these old comic books. And I had to clarify that not only is this not my work, but it's also a straight book because all my other books are gay. They're very gay. They're not sp all specifically gay on the cover, but they're marketed that way. And uh, and I just wrote up a little bio of him, his fascinating life, on my website, jimprovinsano.com. And I got a really good response from it um, because I had also submitted to a library um, catalog listing through Ingram, the publisher and distributor. Right. And it sold like 70 copies because all these libraries just wanted a copy. Libraries like to have new books. Um, I haven't done extensive touring or readings or anything about it because it's his work, but also I'm just glad I got it done because I know how to do it and I did it. Uh, so if you want to read a story that is strange and sad and bittersweet, and it, it was written then, so it very much is of that era. Um, it, it has a very early 60s, late 50s feel to it of, you know, the betrayals and, and the, the petty lives of people who, you know, are just living their, on the shred of their lives and cupping their, you know, living together and getting drunk and romancing. And it's nothing like I would have ever written, which is fascinating, too. So that's what The Lost of New York is all about. And I'm just happy that I got to belatedly published my uncle's novel because I think I got the writing DNA from his side of the family. Well, did, did you have to uh, add to it? Did you have to try to, uh, I guess, match his style and his voice in, in, in um, editing this novel to completion? I didn't want to do anything to it, except I added a few sentences for clarity. Um, I had to decide on spelling and punctuation consistency because, like, the, the word friggin' is spelled two different ways, so I had to decide on one and do a find replace. I had to do a lot of apostrophes because their words are shortened in the dialect. He was very dialect-heavy with the very Bronx accents, and I wanted to retain that, even though it's, it, it shows itself as very dated because it's a 60-year-old manuscript. But I didn't clean it up, per se, as much as just clarify things. I moved a few chapters where the lead character, Bob Coffin, is not a subtle metaphor, is in jail. And I sprinkled, I moved that around so that we go in and out of prison because he had like seven prison chapters all in a row. And I thought, well, let's not do that. We can cinematically move away from prison and then have it develop. And then he finally gets out on parole. And then his relationship with Nancy falls apart and there's betrayals and sexual problems. And it's, it's very, I, I really don't know. It's like the novels of the day because he was basically writing of, 
you know, he was inspired obviously by, you know, um, Hemingway and Faulkner and the others. He had read a lot. This is a, this is a strange thing too, that for a while when he was writing it, he had been arrested again. He had done crimes and they are documented in the, in the book in a way. Um, and one of the craziest things he did was jump off the, uh, the devil's bridge in the Bronx. I forget the, the German name, the Dutch name, but he went to jail for that. And another thing, and they said, well, you can go to jail or you can join the uh, Air Force in Alaska for two years. And he, he shipped out to Alaska and he obviously had a lot of free time because that's where he wrote most of this. Um, so he was, you know, just holed up and, and learning how to write and reading other books. There's a lot of little scraps of paper where he writes down multisyllabic words for vocabulary builders. So there's a, there's a few references where there's a big word thrown in now and then that's a little out of, out of place. And I kind of kept it in because it had a kind of charm to it. But basically, it's a kind of it's an almost complete story about these Nancy and Bob and then their their circle of friends. And, and some of them get married, some of them die, some of them, you know, get in fights. And it, it's, it's just very uh, of the scene of the, of the era. Do, do you think it, it, it still plays well in today's fate? It, it doesn't read like a contemporary look back. Right. It is very much an archival piece. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, so now we move on to Finding Tulsa. Uh, so my seventh. Yeah. So this is um, really an interesting idea. You know, nineteen um, nineties gay cinema. Um, now let's let's talk about the um, preface of this. Basically, it's one of the ones that it's what I call my 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 odyssey, because it took me about twenty years to finish. Um, I had a a real uh, burst of creativity in the mid nineties where I basically was writing four novels at once. I didn't know which one was the better one. Pins ended up coming in first place, but finding Tulsa just took forever because it's, it's big for, for my books. Usually my books are like, you know, here's the main character, here's a few others. And then some stuff happens. This one is basically an entire career kind of snarkily told by Stan Grozniak, a gay filmmaker of the new queer cinema, a contemporary of Todd Haynes and others who made a wacky, sexy trilogy a la, you know, um, Evil Dead, kind of, <laughs> with a little bit of Raiders of the Lost Ark with his sexy star, da uh, Dirk Dak. I need to have notes. Anyway, so, and then he, he kind of, like, falls out of favor because because he, he made a few art gay art films that were poorly received and just kind of lost his impetus. And then his uh, ex boyfriend Barry a producer says look we have this mainstream TV movie with a gay theme and I want you to direct it and he's like he's been working in a video store with his costume designer friend Jorge so he's really not up for it and he gets coaxed into it and at the same time he's casting he's, he decides to do an open call which is ridiculous unheard of although I actually did this for a show I did in New York you do an open call in backstage and you get bags mailbags full of headshots I mean there's like hundreds of them so I recreated that and had Stan go th going through these uh, headshots. And among the headshots he finds is that of of Lance, who, who was played Tulsa in a Ohio community theater production of Gypsy, where Stan was the young Tulsa and Lance was the older Tulsa. And, he, of course, he had a wild crush on him. Didn't know he was gay. Uh, he knew he was gay, but he didn't know if Lance was gay. But anyway... So he finds him and he casts him in the movie and then a, a rekindled romance between his boyhood crush, 
resumes. Um, there's a lot of references to Gypsy throughout because I was in the production of Gypsy as a kid. And I, I didn't just have a crush on the guy who played Tulsa. I pretty much had a crush on all the college boys in the chorus because they were all so adorable. Um, but being in a production of Gypsy at a very young age in a conservative town in Ohio in the 70s was a really uh, a lightning bolt of an experience because it was about sex. It's the story of a stripper and and theater and, you know, it had this huge history of musical theater. So I felt very lucky to be part of it. And it in, obviously embedded in me for years afterwards because I the writing scenes when I'm a kid, when Stan is a kid, are basically, you know, auto fiction. I mean, that's stuff based on stuff that happens. I just change the names to protect the guilty. Um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's about happy endings. It's about sex. It's a lot about AIDS. There's a lot of people who are gone, kind of spook and ghost around in Stan's life. Um, and then in the middle of it all, he gets asked to direct a porn film. He's about to win, possibly be nominated for an Emmy Award, and he's, he says, well, screw it all. If, if this falls apart, I want to do this thing in my life. And he's dating Lance by this time, and Lance is like, fine, whatever, have fun. Just, you know, get a test and use condoms. And he makes an epic porn film that becomes this art classic, unexpectedly success. So so it's like a dual kind of victory for him. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's a little fantasy fulfillment. It's also based on practical experience I have being on film sets having been in musical theater and deciding to let those two worlds collide and being a gay adult video star. Well, no, he's director. Um, <laughs> well, I thought I'm talking about you. Oh no, 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 no. I, I, I I've befriended many a, a, an adult film actor, but no, none of that. Oh, well, <laughs> well, did you, what did you have in your um, mind uh, doing this book? Like what, what were you hoping people get out of this book? You know, that, that's, a, that's a tough question. It's like, I hope you're entertained. I hope you remember these times. Um, there was a bit of, quote, nostalgia, to go back to my friend John Weir, in a lot of my books because I set them in a specific time period because I want to remember it. Um, a lot of new books are, you know, a lot of texting, a lot of phones, a lot of a lot of TV shows. Are the, the plot is based on I have no cell service, and I hate that. Yeah. So I write about mostly about the era where we didn't have that, where we had to call each other or see each other in time and space and, and actually meet or not meet um, as a dramatic impetus. So it's re basically a kind of, you know, memoir of this is this stuff happened. Here's a fictional version of it. But here's what this era was like for those who lived through it, which uh, some reviewers liked and, and, and did experience it. And then the others who were like, I didn't know this kind of thing was going on. I didn't know that gay Hollywood was so, you know, kind of open and yet not open in the nineties. Um, and also just writing about LA, which I visited several times was fun because I, you know, again, more research. It was like, wait, where does Sepulveda end? And how far is it to drive from Santa Monica to, you know, Van Nuys, all that kind of traffic stuff. I love, I, I have maps that I would use and, I would, my brother lives in LA, so I got to call a lot of information from him. And I have friends in LA from Tim Miller to other, other folks who, who introduced me to people like Shishi LaRue and Lance Loud. And, and you, every time I went there, it was like, it was like an interview magazine because you always bump into somebody famous. Yeah, well, I was going to ask if you had to do a lot of research into it or, or if you could rely a lot on memory from those times. It was, it was a blend. I mean, you know, there, there were things where it was like I was at a fancy party. And there was a pool and there were a lot of hot guys and some of them were porn actors and some weren't. And I took notes in my head and I was like, this is going to go in the book because I already had the book conceptualized. Um, 
but they're they're just they're sense memories that you get. Yeah, I didn't experience the Rodney King riots there, but I recreated what I experienced uh, when when it happened. Um, when I, I think it was in New York. Um, so that was pretty pivotal because that was a very obviously a very huge Los Angeles event. I'm a little obtuse in my descriptions of it, and you have to read it to understand it. But th- th- those those days, those era, that era was very specific in terms of Los Angeles, in terms of gay culture, um, the, the 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 protests the, that that happened, and and things that that I just thought, well, I want to I want to document this. I want to make it big too, because a lot of my other books are short, shorter. Uh, and I just I I basically it's sprawling, as my editor Jerry Wheeler said, you're showing off. <laughs> he, he had a lot of edits that suggested I didn't I didn't take them all, but. Um, yeah, I, I want it to be a big because the, the character of Stan Grosniak is funny. He's not me, you know. He he's a he's what he's a bigger guy. He's chunky, and he doesn't really fit into categories like a bear or an otter. He jokes that he should maybe there should be a category of smooth, chunky guys called dolphins. But um, <laughs> and it's a very specific person that I based visually based it on. And, but it's the the story of a fictional filmmaker that's based on several of my friends who, who make movies, who, who, you know, gave me notes and said, no, a, a key grip does this, hmm. et cetera, things like that. Hmm. So how do you yourself, um, when you're putting a book together like this, this, how do you get these characters and, and how do you see them? Are you seeing them in your mind or do you hear the voices? Do you kind of go through the, the motions of the story? Um, how does that work for you? It, in different ways, it, it works differently for each story. But yeah, I do hear them. I mean, I have a the- theatrical, cinematic mind because of the training. Um, I really credit my theater training in teaching me about how to, about dialogue. You have to know when a scene is over. Something has to happen in that scene. People should be talking about something that something happens, something changes, not just oh, what are we having for lunch. So that's important. But at the same time, the the sound of a book. And the, and the colors of a book, they, they really did grow. It was, it was this uh, period where I, I just had a garden full of ideas. And I was like, oh, this is very florid. Okay, this goes in that book. Oh, this is very New York. Okay, that goes in the Bike Messenger book. So that's kind of where I would, I would get these weeds that would grow into these beautiful vines, and I would know how to place them and where to put the ideas. But for some things like pins, I immediately, there was, a, there was an actual crime that happened, and then where a, a kid was killed. And then there was another crime at the same time on TV about um, a gang rape on a wrestling team. And I thought, well, those go together. And then visiting New Jersey and, and being near it. And I, I liked, I wanted something that was very urban. That was very well suburban actually, but in the dialect of New Jersey, um, which is very different than the cater waiter novel, which is very effete. It sounds like Michael Musto or some, gossip column that's might have written it you know so the tone is great because I, I basically take on a character when i'm writing a different style i'm just wondering as with character creation have your characters done anything maybe to uh, surprise you do they kind of rebel against the storyline the plot anything like that or do you feel oh, like yeah. you're very in control no <laughs> <laughs> no um particularly with my fourth and fifth novels Every time I think of you and the sequel, Message of Love, um, the first three, three, there were three chapters in Every Time I Think of You that were based on a dream. I woke up at five o'clock in the morning, and fortunately I didn't have to go to work that day, and I had coffee. And I wrote what I thought would be a cute short story, and then it kept going. 
and it just kept going and going. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is a novel. I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Nine months later, you know, I finished it. And fortunately it won a Lambert award. It's the, it's the, it's the most, the least amount of work for the most amount of profit and success, which wow. I have no clue about that. But at one point I was half, literally halfway through the story and I was like, okay, now what? And then I realized, oh, Everett's going to become a paraplegic. He's going to have a lacrosse accident. And I had not clearly done disabled writing except for a bit in pins with, you know, wrestling injuries. And I had realized I had a heck ton of work to do in terms of research. So I called up, I had three wheelchair using friends, two of them are dancers actually, and said, we need to have a chat because I, I want to get this right. And a lot of disability themed uh, nonfiction and fiction um, there was a lot of cliche stuff that's bad. I wanted to see the worst of it, uh, like the straight romances where, you know, the, the gal, the former cheerleader has to heal the former football player who got his legs blown off in the, the war. And there's a lot of bad fiction about disabled people. And being not disabled, I knew I could get it wrong. So along with the creative impulse based on dreams, I had to get it right about what was it like in 1980? To, what kind of wheelchairs were available? What was available in terms of physical therapy? Where would he go? It's set in Pennsylvania, so where would he go for that? Just, you know, so all that stuff led to stories, and, and the sequel was even more so. I visited Philadelphia. I went to places where the characters would have gone to school at Temple and at Penn. I actually found where they could have had an apartment that was accessible. I actually took pictures of it, knocked on the door. They gave me a tour because it was a, it was a ramp outside this apartment where they could have lived. And the owners were, the resident was very nice. And I said, I'm writing a book and I think I want to use this house. And she's like, yeah, there's a, there was a ramp for an older lady who used to live here, blah, blah, blah. So this is all not, a, you know, you don't see it in the book as much as you just, I just know that I got it right. Um, and that's where the creativity leads, you know, visiting archives at Penn and Temple and finding out when they added ramps to certain buildings. And, and surprisingly, that Temple had not only a thriving uh, gay community of activists, but they also were very accessible. They had hundreds of wheelchair-using students. So that was something that was fascinating to me. But then also Everett, his parents pressured him to transfer to Penn because they're rich and they wanted him to go to an impressive school, not just one that's accessible. So he becomes a kind of guinea pig for Penn, Penn to show off, look, we have our disabled student and we are doing this. Here we're putting a, a little ramp for the swimming pool. For, you know, so it became, and this actually happened. There was a lawsuit where students were not being able to get into these old buildings because they all had stairs. And so it became part of the story. The actual history of disabled disability and, and you know gay student unions that I found in the yearbooks and the newspaper became a part of this story in the, in the 1980s. So that was fun. That was really fun. I was glad it got the attention it deserved um, because I broke the, I categorized them as romances, but I, I really broke the rules in terms of romance. Um, Somebody dies. There's, there's, uh, they have, they have affairs. Um, there's a lot of rules in romances where you're not supposed to have things, certain things happen. And I broke them all. Oh, good. We like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's something like Tulsa and, and, and even any of your books here, when we look at it, um, underneath it all, is there some sort of a t subtext or a plot or something that you've put in the books and, and maybe even, it happened organically. It might not have been conscious at the time, but when you look back at it, you realize there's something else going on underneath the story. Um, I Several of the books have a mythological subtext. Um, 
Pins is basically an allegory for the St. Sebastian story. Um, Cyclosin is really not only about activists and, and bike messengers, but about the myth of the decline of the centaurs. And you can see a centaur smack dab right on the shoulder of the cover model that I photoshopped over his own tattoo of a centaur. So it's not subtle, but at the same time, those are my little little clues to help me get through the story, um, to, to help minimize and focus on the color scheme. For instance, monkey suits, the cater waitering book. It's, it's about the Reagan 1980s. It's about gay cater waiters with a little act up in there. But it's basically about this slave culture, this volunteer voluntary slave culture where people, you know, $15 an hour doesn't sound like slave wages to most people. But I kept it in muted colors, in blacks and whites mostly. I didn't involve a lot of florid colors because I wanted it to look and feel like a New Yorker cartoon. Um, very of an era, very uh, uh, caricatures. And others ones were much more full and fully humanized characters, like Every Time I Think of You and Message of Love. With, with Finding Tulsa, the Odyssey is woven in, as well as the, the, the story of Gypsy. So I find inspiration from something else that I find somewhere midpoint through the story. It's like, what does this sound like? What, what story am I actually telling here? And, you know, I, I, I agree with the whole Joseph, um, the, the, you know, the, the hero, the hero's journey and stuff, but it's not always about the hero's journey. Sometimes he's not a hero. He's a coward. But I think underneath it all, and the reason I write gay male fiction is that the humanity of people is really the, the, the undercurrent of the whole thing. You know, yeah. people are basically good. They go through stuff and they find love or they don't. Um, and they don't. And, and, and I want to showcase the humanity of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, if someone had never heard of you before, highly unlikely, but there might be a few out there. Um, <laughs> what one book would you say is a must read or a good read that um, would would help them get to know what kind of a writer you are? Oh, that's weird. Well, pins because I have extra copies, and I'll mail you. <laughs> I still have one more box full in the basement. Oh, there you go. Uh, the one that I think which it has surprised people, and it kind of fell by the wayside, but yet I'm very proud of it, is my sixth novel, Now I'm Here. It's about a piano prodigy who falls in love with the son of a pumpkin farmer in rural Ohio. Um, it's very sad, but very beautiful. Um, the loose little pieces of it, that, that reveal my own life are I did get some local notoriety for playing a piano solo version of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody before there were flash mobs and, you know, malls where you could, you know, get, uh, become quickly famous. Uh, and then the pumpkin farmer stuff is I actually worked on a pumpkin farm. So these were two separate stories that I realized were going to clash and go together. Um, and it really deals with AIDS very specifically. And, and again, I broke the rules where, um, you're supposed to have a hero. You're supposed to have a survivor. And I was like, you know what? Hundreds of thousands of people did not survive. So sorry. Um, and it's a heartbreaker. And I'm glad I got through it because I think there's a lot of revisionism now where people are saying we don't need tragic gay stories anymore. Um, and I don't think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's important. Uh, but, yeah, the world is changing. And with that, um, social media, how do you – like social media and do use it where where do people find uh jim i do all the things except tiktok i refuse to do <laughs> oh, um i again the youtube channel i have my own website has links to all the things my author page on facebook uh, the twitter account is uh it's okay instagram is fun 
you know, I do what the, what they. I think the tone of each of these media is should be. Instagram is you know my neighbor's cats, and here's my book, uh, and and here's a, here's a bee flowing around a plant. It's not very uh, intense. It's light and it's fun. Twitter is basically self promotion, um, and I don't get into politics. You don't want to know what I think. I, I, I'm not a political person. I mean, I'm political. Obviously, I'll forward something you know good, but I don't indulge in the memes of the republicans and maligning them because so many other people do that so well i don't want to get into that vat of of feces um and facebook again it's like you learn to just like get in and get out do your thing and not indulge in too much because i also co-manage the bar's social media as well and I have to be even more reserved when someone says something really stupid um or if they say something hateful we delete it but if they say something stupid i just have to let it go because that's their comment and that's that's where they're coming from. Um, yeah. Goodreads is another place, too, where you just post your stuff and you like something and you post a review and that's it. I got into a flame war with um, some idiot who was attacking one of my books. And that was a big mistake. And I learned very quickly that you don't do that. Because people on Goodreads, it's really about the readers using the books to talk about themselves and other things. It's not about the author. Um yeah, and it's kind of a, it's a, it's an evil, good thing because you do get likes and you do get sales, but once they turn on you, oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> well, I personally hunt them down, hmm. you know, <laughs> and and take them out. But that's that's a different story. That's a whole other. It's weird. You're supposed to be very personable and open, and at the same time, you have to keep your guard up. Yeah, well, it is. It's different. It's highly. It's a. It's an unusual. Um, tool it's something you have to learn and it's kind of um um you know i get tons of hate mail uh really oh yeah but you know for the most part um it's okay now um i mean there was a time when it used to stress me out um but the last few years i i barely get in any fights anymore and i barely go after anybody um Mm -hmm. or get into it um because it takes it takes your mind off of what you're trying to do Right. It takes you out of your art if you're doing a book or if you're doing a show. And, you, you know, you got to focus on what you're doing and not that noise on the outside, you know, yeah. or you never get anything done. Or it'll affect your, your, your job that you are doing. It makes it different, yeah. you know. I mean, how did, and how did things like the COVID work for you in your writing and that? Uh, do you find that um, – you know, because we have to admit, the last few years have been kind of stressful, kind of weird. Um, yeah. Certainly things we've never really dealt with before between the politics and the intensity of it, as well as, let's say, the COVID and uh, just everything. So when all of that's going on outside of your door, do you kind of um, change how you write or does it interfere? Um, I pretty much had Finding Tulsa underway before it hit and my publisher palm drive uh said let's go through with this and i was like really we're going to publish a book about a 90s gay filmmaker in um in the middle of a plague a month before the most contentious election since 2000 and like yes <laughs> what could go wrong <laughs> what could go wrong well people had already started pivoting by doing youtube and zoom chats author chats and i had done a few and i did the first one with um uh Dog-Eared Books, which is now Fabulosa Books, where the original a Different Light Bookstore was on Castro Street. So I kind of brought them into the present of 
you, you need to do this. You need to start doing online chats. And, and so I was proud of that. I did a lovely chat with Baruch Porres Hernandez, who's a brilliant writer and poet and comic here in San Francisco. So that was the pivot was, okay, I will, I can do a saints and sinners chat. I will propose a panel because I'm not going to new Orleans and neither is anyone else. So we had a great panel, a diverse panel that we all talked about stuff and, and, and got through it. And then I did other chats with other um, bookstores. I got to do, a chat with the Bureau of General Services Career Division in New York because without going to New York. So, and then I also got more job responsibilities. So I didn't lose my job like so many other people did. And we had to keep the Bay, Bay, Bay Area Reporter running. We were down to like 12 pages for a year. And we did a fundraising scheme um, where membership drive and I made a trailer with all these historic, you know, covers from the paper. So I hunkered down basically the introvert in me was like, I get to stay home. We yeah. <laughs> And I got stuff done. And at the same time, I would like binge on, you know, Ben and Jerry's and watch too many, you know, Flash episodes. But um, I tried to balance it out between, you know, hunkering down and putting stuff out there. Um, because people still wanted to see things. They wanted to read things. And, and they did. Yeah. Yeah. Unusual time, you know. Um, so what do you got coming up next? Like, what are you working on now? trying to assemble one of my next two novels, which are both kind of light comedic, um, trying to get the motivation to get a memoir out about my dance and theater years, basically just chapters about that. Um, not a whole, my life, my whole life story. Cause nobody wants to read that, but focusing on the, the wonderful and sad memories of being in the theater since I was a kid and how dance and theater led to becoming a writer. Um, that's basically the thrust of that. But, Again, I don't do queries well, so <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying reading all my other friends' memoirs that they all wrote during the plague. So. <laughs> yeah, well, if you put pictures in it, people will want to see it. Come on. There's that. Oh. Um, but I'm, I'm really surprised and thrilled by uh, several colleagues' books, uh, memoirs, and, and fiction that they've put out and supporting them through my job, but also just reading them, you know, reading books and, uh, and, and, and supporting other, other artists as well. Yeah, it's a good thing. Networking's great, you know. It, I think it helps you as much as them, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's fun to be able to do that. I get a pitch from one of my freelancers here at work that says, oh, I just did an interview with John Waters about the 50th anniversary of, of uh, Pink Flamingos. And I was like, yay. And, you know, I edited it, put it together, insert a trailer. And it's great. So we have an interview with John Waters in our Pride issue. And then he also paired it with a, a review of the book about uh, of the collected writings of the late Cookie Muller who was one of his actors, but also she did other things. Um, so just thinking that, oh, my God, think of all those people who know John Waters but don't remember Cookie Muller. Now they do. And that's because I said yes to that article. He wrote it, Mark William Norby, and it's out there. And I'm thrilled by that kind of stuff. Every week I get that sense of satisfaction in sharing other people's art. Um, so that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good life that way, you know. How, how is the Bay Area Reporter doing that? How, how are... You know, t the old typical um, paper, newspaper mag and magazines and stuff. How do you think it's doing? Well, I just took a picture of a huge stack of of our papers of the 80-page Pride issue, which is going out on newsstands today. And I just did a triple social media link to those out of town. They can do the full page view version, you know, PDF viewable online. So we got through it. Um, and those advertisers came on board and, and helped us. And, you know, I was able to assign a dozen plus stories 
and get things in there that I like as well as things that I didn't know about before. So that's part of it. But also we had a, as I said before, we had a member subscription program where people could donate and then get, get extra access to stories. And I put together the historic trailer on, on the BAR's YouTube channel. Just look up Bay Area Reporter. And then I, pr- I produced a dozen um, online chats through all of last year to celebrate the paper's 50th anniversary, which was really fun. I mean, I, I use StreamYard, not Zoom, just because it's easier. Yeah. But I would, you know, contact a few writers, a few local f- famous people and say, let's have a chat. And we would talk about film or we talked about pornography or we talked about the crime that was covered over the years or we talked about specifically politics. And we got some notable people who we had hundreds of views on Facebook and the archive versions on YouTube are, they have like 50 to a hundred views, but I'm just glad I got to produce these series because I, I knew how to do it. But also we now have an archive of pretty much all the main topics that the paper has covered in the last 50 years with some veteran writers and photographers who were there in the seventies and the eighties who were there with the paper when it was, you know, when it was kind of ratty, when it was uh, very opinionated. Um, so the evolution of, of LGBT journalism, you can see through the evolution of the Bay Area Reporter, which I've been working for off and on for 30 years, so I'm kind of proud to be part of it. But also, it gave me this outlet to write about things and to assign other people to write things that, I, you know, it's just uh, this this bouquet every week is like, look at all these things. You know, I just love sharing, you know, the, these uh, feature articles. Like, you know, Cornelius Washington did an interview with Martha Wash or... I got to interview Eric Orner. I'm going to do a story next week with the car- cartoonist. Fabulous guy. He has a new book about uh, Barney Frank, a graphic novel. And, you know, we all love the unfabulous life, mostly unfabulous life of Ethan Green. Is it Green? And he's he's got a new project out. So I was like, hey, call me up. And, you know, just to be able to do that, to have that um, advantage, to be able to just say, let's get this trans film out there. Let's get this out here. Let's Let's get this new you know, exhibit um, promoted. And I wish I had 20 more pages a week, but I would be exhausted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, you know. But, yeah, and we, uh, so I, I had them put the uh, Bay Area Reporter and Fabuloso books up on our websites as well. So Great. it's on every page, and we'll have yours up as well. Um, certainly been great talking to you and uh, everyone got to buy the book, like one of his books, Finding Tulsa, <laughs> do something. Yeah. He needs, you know, he needs it. Come on. He's, he's, he needs food. Help this man out. Uh, well, it's not so much, it's not about the money. It's about the readership. It's about, I, I, I wouldn't have published it if I didn't think it, it had something of value for entertainment at least. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. You know. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Our guest is Jim Provisano. Thank you. Thank you, Alan and Dave. Thanks, Jim. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.